History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hello everyone, welcome to the History of Persia. This is episode 102, The Coup Without a King. Recently, I've discussed topics like slavery and labor under the Achaemenids, my personal ranking of all the Achaemenid kings, and the intricacies of the Zoroastrian religious calendar. That means we left Artaxerxes III and our historical narrative way back in episode 98. Once his empire was settled, Artaxerxes III did what any young and ambitious Persian monarch would do and set out for conquest. His first attempt to retake Egypt was unsuccessful and followed by a spree of rebellions in Phoenicia, But when the great king returned to the west, he brought the rebels down and sent his army to sack the city of Sidon as an example for anybody who dared to challenge him. Then it was onward to Egypt, where he applied the opposite tactic after a grueling siege of Pelusium in the western Sinai by offering mercy and safe passage to any Egyptian or Greek mercenary in their employ on the condition that they surrender. This policy carried the Persian armies through Egypt. As they marched south, garrison after garrison and town after town laid down their weapons and surrendered. Artaxerxes was initially opposed by his close friend Bagoas, a eunuch advisor to the king, who was briefly captured by Egypt's Greek mercenaries as part of a scheme to elevate the personal status of Mentor of Rhodes, a Greek admiral on the Persian payroll. Supposedly, Bagoas was unaware of Mentor's involvement, and the campaign proceeded according to plan, reaching the white walls of Memphis as Pharaoh Nakhtorheb fled into exile across the Nubian border. Once Memphis opened its gates, Egypt was functionally Persian once again. Sure, they'd need to send some troops south and make sure everyone settled down near the Nubian border, but the reconquest was complete. Artaxerxes returned from Egypt in 339 BCE, heading back to Parsa to rule his empire and direct his satraps and generals against various minute rebellions that sprung up on the local level. But primarily, it was time to get back to -to day-to-day governance. As with most Achaemenid kings, an important part of that for Artaxerxes III was building new things at Persepolis. Much of this was probably a continuation of work begun under his father, that progressed throughout Artaxerxes III's reign. 
but it was all very grandiose in a way that would have placed more emphasis on him personally than an Achaemenid before or after. By 339, the palace terrace was getting pretty crowded. The palaces of Darius the Great, Xerxes, and Artaxerxes I didn't really need expansion, and the great audience halls like the Apadana and the Hall of a Hundred Columns were so much more than sufficient that the Hall of a Hundred Columns was now being used as auxiliary storage for the treasury. However, Artaxerxes II had shifted royal attention away from the family's traditional necropolis at Nakshirostam, and he built his own tomb on the hillside overlooking the Persepolis complex to the southeast. To accommodate this, work began on a new processional path lined with low walls and columns to direct mourners toward the hillside. Characteristically less modest, and honestly with more to brag about than his predecessor, Artaxerxes III also built a tomb on the hill overlooking Persepolis, but much lower, and due east of the Apadana, rather than set further away from the terrace itself. Like Artaxerxes II, Artaxerxes III's tomb was more or less identical to the tombs of their forebearers. To facilitate the grander procession that naturally came with holding the funeral events at the palace rather than Nakshirostam, Artaxerxes III continued filling in the northeastern side of the Persepolis complex with columns and new buildings to direct mourners up toward his tomb. This was largely manifest in the form of the Army Road, a defined path leading east from Xerxes' old Gate of Nations, lined with pairs of stone blocks with just enough room between them to accommodate a line of mourners or guards on either side of the path. This essentially divided the complex into two sides, depending on which way you passed through the Gate of All Nations. You could either enter the terrace and turn south through Xerxes' gate, entering the courtyard in front of Darius's original Apadana, or go straight east and follow the army road, ultimately leading to Artaxerxes I's Hall of a Hundred Columns. It eliminated the perception of a large open space on the northeastern terrace. A single low wall also divided this newly defined eastern section from a small group of storerooms on the northeastern edge, dating back to Darius the Great's initial construction. Essentially, all of these walls and divisions sectioned off the Persepolis Palace into several strictly defined areas of individual purpose. It seems that Artaxerxes III actually intended to replicate the Gate of All Nations on the eastern side of the complex as well, with a similar structure placed at the point where the army road would have seen a procession turn south and head toward the Hall of a Hundred Columns. However, this new gate was never completed, and was likely only just starting at the end of Artaxerxes' reign. It's not even particularly clear whether the Hall of a Hundred Columns was still being used for its intended purpose at all at this point. We know archaeologically that it was used as storage, 
when the palace complex was destroyed. However, that would also have been in late winter, at a time when the Great Kings were traditionally in Susa. So that storage use may have been temporary. On the other hand, by Artaxerxes III, a series of additional rooms were built off the eastern side of the hall. Labeled the garrison quarters by early archaeologists, they may just have been spillover rooms for the nearby treasury building. At least part of the hall's function was replaced under Artaxerxes III with the smaller Hall of 32 Columns built immediately north of its larger cousin. This smaller audience hall was significantly more enclosed than most similar Achaemenid buildings, with just two narrow doorways at the front. It was obviously intended for smaller gatherings, and the time of its construction and placement on the eastern terrace suggests that it might have been tied to the newly developed funeral ceremonies. Immediately north, as in almost sharing a wall, we find another small building with no official archaeological name. It had a doorway on its southeastern corner immediately outside the Hall of 32 Columns. This led into a narrow corridor that ran around the western edge of the building. This corridor was actually separated by a solid wall about halfway through, preventing anybody from walking all the way from one side to the other. Instead, you would have to walk almost all the way to that dividing wall to pass into an antechamber on the eastern side. This led out into a courtyard, featuring a large elevated platform. From there, you could pass into another antechamber on the northern side of the building and back into a corridor that let you out next to the unfinished gate. However, this courtyard also provided access to the tombs of Artaxerxes II and III. What exactly this building and the platform behind it were for, we don't know, but its location and time period make it likely that it was the gateway for the king's funeral rites. In foreign affairs, Artaxerxes III did return to find one highly concerning problem brewing up in Thrace. While he'd been focused so attentively on Egypt and making pacts of friendship with the Greeks to ensure their good behavior while he was away, Artaxerxes and his governors did very little to constrain the rapid expansion of the kingdom of Macedon. Now led by the innovative and ambitious King Philip II, Macedon had been sweeping through northern Greece and Thrace. Coincidentally, the two monarchs came to power at almost the exact same time, in 359 BCE. In the time it took Persia to retake Egypt, Macedon had gone from middling northern kingdom to the second most powerful force in the Aegean. The whole story is something for another day, but Macedon's borders now stretched from Thessaly in northern Greece all the way to the Hellespont, and most of the Greek states were on the defensive or beaten. In 340, Philip arrived at the Greco-Thracian city of Perinthus, modern Marmara, and besieged it. 
The Perinthians would go down in history as the city that held out against Philip for months on end, and never gave him the pleasure of using his newly developed Macedonian phalanx soldiers in the field. Alarmed by the speed of Macedonian expansion, Artaxerxes directed the Anatolian governors to send aid across the Hellespont to Perinthus and Byzantium, which faced a siege of its own in 339, when Philip attempted to cut off Byzantine support for the Perinthian siege. Philip did break through the walls of Perinthus, only to discover that while his men had been at work on the outer defenses, the city's inhabitants had been hard at work constructing a second wall inside, connecting the outermost houses with a shorter, but significantly stronger, fortification. Still receiving Achaemenid support once cut off from Byzantium, Perinthus remained functionally impregnable, and the Macedonians were forced to give up the assault and shift the bulk of their attention to Byzantium which was now receiving a near-constant flow of weaponry and food from Chios, Kos, and Rhodes, all semi-Achaemenid islands now that they had been subjugated by the satraps of Caria. There, too, the resistance was too strong and Philip was forced to withdraw, heading back to Greece to deal with the newly formed alliance of Athens and Thebes. Macedon was obviously concerning but hardly a threat on the scale of independent Egypt. You know those Greeks. Philip will be in charge for a bit, he'll die, nobody will be able to replace him, and some new hegemon will emerge, and Artaxerxes will deal with it then. Frankly, the great king was probably more frustrated that he had to deal with a rising tide of successful tribal warlords on both ends of his northern empire. Remember, based on their tactics and representation in artwork, the Persians seem to have viewed the Greeks as little more than settled Scythians. Both were unruly and chaotic tribes at the fringes of civilization. Over the following year, Artaxerxes III was all set to get down to the business of ruling. But according to the few sources we have, he wasn't particularly good at it. On one hand, Artaxerxes was, in many ways, exactly what the empire needed. He was an ambitious cutthroat, willing to carve a bloody path through his own borders to seize power and lead the Persians into glorious wars against the rebellious Egyptians. He skillfully weaponized both the most brutal forms of militant punishment and clemency to frighten soldiers against his enemies. But battlefield leadership and civil leadership are not always a shared skill set. We know little of his internal affairs beyond building projects, but Diodorus tells us that Artaxerxes III, quote, oppressed his subjects cruelly and harshly, and that his savage disposition made him hated. Bear in mind that Diodorus does always portray the Achaemenids in the worst possible light, and is especially polemic toward the later kings in order to play up a retrospective idea that the empire was in decline. From internal records of trade and obvious military successes, we know that wasn't really the case. 
the Empire was more politically stable under Artaxerxes III than it had been since Darius II died. However, from what other information we have about him, there is probably some truth in this portrayal of Artaxerxes III. Political stability is not necessarily achieved through kindness, and every source agrees that this king had a brutal streak. However, the solution that manifested was not particularly better. By this time, Artaxerxes III and his sister-wife Atossa had several adult and adolescent sons. We can probably assume that there were still more potential heirs whose mothers were concubines. Just as Artaxerxes III was the most violent son of a more peace-minded king, there was probably a more peaceable prince among his children. Unfortunately, Artaxerxes III was hale, healthy, and only in his 40s from a bloodline known for extremely long-lived royals. If he had his father's luck, the Persian Empire could look forward to another half-century of the same rules. What to do, what to do. Well, if you remember back to episode 98, you might remember Begoas. He's that eunuch advisor, and he was supposedly a close personal friend of Artaxerxes, paired with mentor of Rhodes, to command one of the Persian divisions in Egypt. Bagoas recognized that Artaxerxes was a danger to the empire, but nobody who is close friends with someone fitting Artaxerxes' description is likely to be the kindest and most thoughtful person themselves. Embracing the grand tradition of dealing with troublesome Achaemenids, Bagoas wielded the great king's trust as a dagger and slipped some poison into the royal wine cup. Hack, cough, gag, etc., etc., thump. Artaxerxes III collapsed and died. He had been the great king, king of Persia, king of lands, king of this earth far and wide, and the king of kings, Kshayathia Kshayathiyanam, for 20 years, and pharaoh of Egypt for just two. However, Bagoas's plot extended well beyond the king himself. None of his children could be fully trusted to take the empire in the direction that Bagoas wanted, which seems to have been whichever direction made Bagoas himself most powerful. The nobility would never stand for a nominacaemonid to seize power, certainly not while any of the king's sons still lived, and Bagoas himself could hardly claim legitimacy. He was a eunuch, castrated, and unable to produce heirs to continue his own dynasty, even if he could claim power. No, he needed a nice, easily manipulated scion of Achaemenes, and conveniently, Arces, the youngest son of Artaxerxes III and Atossa, was old enough to sit the throne but not quite 25, the full age of majority. Based on a single coin depicting a young, beardless man with the pharaonic crown on one side and a Caymanid ruler on the other, from the city of Musia, Arces may have been a teenager. 
The idea of putting the king or prince's face on a coin is apparently unique to this example in Achaemenid history, and might suggest that he was off in Anatolia at the time to get his first taste of governance under one of the local satraps. But of course, the youngest son was never going to be first in line for a disputed succession, especially if he wasn't even a legal adult. No matter. What works for the gander works for the gosling, and Begoas and his agents quickly set to work, murdering every Achaemenid prince in the empire, save for the young and impressionable Arces. When I was applying to grad school, in just one visit to a prospective department, my roommate and I kept track of all the languages we had been told we needed to learn to study ancient Persia. The final tally came to 27 relevant languages. As somebody overwhelmed by Greek, Latin, and the need to pick up French and German, that was a bit terrifying. Reading mostly dead languages is different from speaking them, but just picking up a new language in any context is daunting. Fortunately, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. I've had more than a few times where I wished I knew modern Persian. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years and built up a catalog of 25 languages to learn, all available through their lifetime membership, which you can get today for 50% off. Not all of them overlap with that list from grad school, but many do. Hebrew, Persian, Latin, German, and Russian, just to name a few. Rosetta Stone has no English translations, always the part I found most frustrating, and instead focuses on long-term retention through an intuitive process of working up from simple words to full sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. brought back to Parsa to oversee his father's funeral at Persepolis. Arces was crowned King Artaxerxes IV. Because, hey, that name's mostly worked out so far. Now, I'm going to call this monarch Artaxerxes IV, but you will find an awful lot of history books that just keep calling him Arces. This is because that is all he is ever called in the Greek histories. We only know that he took Artaxerxes as a regnal name thanks to a barely legible Babylonian tablet and an inscription from the Lycian city of Xanthus. 
And if you're wondering how the Greeks could miss this seemingly important detail, most ancient sources for Artaxerxes IV's reign don't even give it its own paragraph. As far as we can tell, Bagoas just ordered, uh, advised the king to put the empire into autopilot and carry on with whatever existing orders were under Artaxerxes III. Presumably, the exception was for anything that benefited Bagoas and his co-conspirators personally. But for the next two years, we know almost nothing about what was happening in Persian territory. For most of the empire, everything seems to have just kept going as it had before, presumably with somewhat less threat of violent reprisal from the king if you upset him. But I said most. The great conqueror Artaxerxes III was dead, and Artaxerxes IV was a child openly seen as a puppet. It should be no surprise that someone smelled blood in the water. Two or three someones, in fact. The first, and least well-attested, was Nadine Bell, a local leader of some sort in southern Babylonia. His name is only known from a single, fragmentary king list from the city of Uruk, which places someone, quote, whose second name is Nadine Bell, in between Artaxerxes IV and his Persian successor. This seemingly points to some kind of local rebellion attempting to reassert Babylonian kingship for the first time in almost 200 years but the revolt never seems to have taken hold further north, as Artaxerxes was still recognized as king in Babylon. That said, another damaged fragment from Babylon itself, called the Alexander and Artaxerxes fragment, does suggest that there might have been some degree of uprising or general chaos in the north at this time which even damaged the Esagila, the Temple of Marduk, in Babylon. Most of the text is beyond help, but we can read a lot of damage, the enemy with fire, damage, and the troops, damage, iron of his own hands, the debris from the wall of damage were removed. On that day, damage, in some month of some year, of Arces, son of Ochus, who is called Artaxerxes. Some people of some houses entered the temple of Anunitu inside the city of Sippar. This chronicle was composed either under Alexander the Great or his successors, so it's not necessarily the Babylonians scoffing at Artaxerxes III and Fourth when they don't use their regnal names. But it's not a great sign for Artaxerxes IV's reputation. Whatever this originally said, it seems to be describing violence and destruction in Babylon and Sippar around 336 BCE. Then we look over to Egypt. Is it really any surprise that the recently reconquered people who rebel every time the Persians look kinda off-balance, took advantage here. 
Given that the recently deposed pharaoh Noctorheb was presumably still alive and in exile down in Nubia, you'd think he was behind this. And many scholars have certainly speculated that way. However, he doesn't appear in the small number of sources that reference this revolt. Instead, Egypt came under the control of Pharaoh Kabash. Very little is known about him, from his origins to his activities beyond generally saying that he rebelled. In the modern histories that even bother to mention him, you'll often see it stated that Kabash only controlled the Nile Delta. However, this doesn't necessarily seem to be the case. The Nubian king of Kush, Nastasen, recorded a victory against a pharaoh called Kambasutin around this time. This was once thought to be a reference to Cambyses, way back during the first Persian conquest of Egypt. However, modern chronologies of the Nubian kings put Nastasen much later in the timeline, meaning that this Kambasutin must be the same person as Kabash. It's the only opening for a pharaoh with that name to appear. If Kabash was invading Nubia, then he must have kicked the Achaemenids out of the Nile Valley entirely again. And finally, we turn back to Macedon. After returning from the Hellespont in 338, Philip II defeated the last stand of Athens and Thebes in the Battle of Chironea. It was the dramatic last stand of independence for the Greek city-states, but ultimately a futile effort. Philip forced almost all of Greece except Sparta, mostly because it was now on its way to becoming a historically interesting backwater, to join the League of Corinth. Nominally a mutual defense pact, but functionally an extension of the burgeoning Macedonian Empire. The League was founded with a specific goal in mind as well. Invade the Persian Empire. And invade they did. For the entirety of Artaxerxes IV's reign, the Macedonian prepared his invasion force, and in 336, Philip sent one of his generals, called Parmenion, to establish a beachhead in northern Anatolia with 10,000 men, and prepare for the liberation of the Greek coastal cities. Liberation, of course, means subjugating them to Macedon instead of Persia. The arrival of the Macedonian army did herald instant revolt by the Greek cities and islands that could manage it. The Persia-aligned governments of Lesbos, Chios, Ephesus, and Iasus were all evicted from their cities, and both Lesbos and Ephesus erected statues of Philip II in public spaces. Parmenion moved swiftly once his forces were on land, assaulting and capturing Greco-Phrygian cities in the Troad as quickly as he could. With Diodorus referencing how a statue of Ariobarzanes, the former satrap of Hellespontine Phrygia, was torn down in a temple to the Greek goddess Athena during a sack of one town. Ironically, the presence of the Persian statue in the temple probably means that Ariobarzanes had actively supported the Greek shrine in some way. 
It was a clever strategy, and not one deployed in the same way by Greek invaders before. Traditionally, Athenian and Spartan armies had meticulously scraped their way along the coast, only moving inland once they had a large swath of Ionia under their dominion. By striking straight into the Troad first, Parmenion severed the connection between Hellespontine Phrygia and Lydia immediately. It did open him up to the possibility of a two-front war, but it also prevented the local militia from forming into one large host that could actually oppose his invasion. It was the obvious downside to Artaxerxes III's decision to strip the western satraps of their mercenaries. There simply weren't enough troops to fight back if Parmenion could move quickly enough. Under Artaxerxes III's original plan, the idea would be that something like this would happen, and then he personally would authorize the use of additional soldiers from around the empire, or limited funds to hire mercenaries in the moment in order to repel these attacks. Under Begoas's influence, Artaxerxes IV was unable to give those orders. The Macedonian invasion was ignored entirely by the royal court. Persia's only saving grace here was that Parmenion couldn't move quickly enough. In mid-autumn of 336 BCE, the Macedonian invaders ground almost to a halt as confusion and mourning struck their camp. King Philip II was dead, murdered by a knife-wielding assassin at his daughter's wedding. But that is very much a story for another time. We're actually going to step back from the narrative once again, just for a moment, for a sort of dual religion and culture episode focused around Bagoas. And another Bagoas, who is just about to enter the picture for a discussion of gender and sexuality in the Achaemenid Empire. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you'll find things like my bio, the bibliography, podcast merchandise, and the Achaemenid family tree. You'll also find the support page where you can help out this project financially. That includes one-time donations, affiliate links, and most importantly, Patreon, also found at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. Patreon offers a monthly subscription where you get access to things like bonus episodes, merchandise, discounts, ad-free listening, and reading recommendations. Subscription tiers range from just $1 to $20 and do a lot to keep the lights on. You don't have to spend money to support me, though. You can also do that by leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice, and most importantly of all, telling other people to listen. Independent podcasts live or die by word of mouth, so tell your friends, tell your family, and share on social media. You can find me at History of Persia on Twitter, or History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until the next time, thank you all so much for listening to History of Persia.